Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Hey, um, how's everyone going? Good? Awesome. Hey, um, I've had a fairly crazy week. I don't know how everyone else is going. Struggling. Um, but hopefully you're awake. I don't know if it's possible. Can I just be turned down a little bit? I'm just super loud here hearing something. Uh, during the week, I was catching up with some friends who I hadn't seen for a couple of weeks. And uh, I work at Mueller College. Mueller College is like our sister school. We have a school here at, um, just on campus called Carmichael. And uh, Mueller College was started maybe 30 years ago now. And um, I guess over the years, they decided, you know, whatever's happening there seems to be helping the community, so they decided to reproduce it, and now we've got Carmichael College as well. I teach maths and physics at Mueller, and uh, I was just in the staff room talking to some other teachers, and I don't know why, but I was telling them a story that I'd heard about some, a couple that got married, and as part of their wedding, they decided that they would... Um, I don't know why, but they, they got married in this big traditional um, building. But they decided, as part of their wedding, to make it extra special, they'd have a moment in the ceremony after the minister would announce them as man and wife. I now, I, I, not, I, yeah, I now announce you as man and wife, whatever. They would release these doves, and these doves, these two doves would fly off as a symbol of their love for one another. Anyway, so I'm telling this story in the staff room. I said, yeah, so I don't know really what they were doing, but, you know, they say, you know, do you take this man? Do you take this woman? Yes, I do, I do. You know, you, uh, now I announce you, man and wife, release the doves. And they release the doves, and they fly off up towards the ceiling, into the massive ceiling fan and get hit and splatter over everyone. So I'm telling this story in the staff room. And then one of my friends says, I've got a story like that. And then he says, when he was at school, he's in, like he's a student at school. And while he's in class, a bird flies in through the window and lands on a desk. And one of the other students is just looking at it going, Okay, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, the student grabs it, and everyone's like, what the heck? He's just grabbed a live bird. And then this other student, this other kid, he decides he's going to throw it back out the window from where it came and be a hero. So he grabs it, and then he goes like this. But instead of throwing it out the window, the window was shut, and he broke the bird's neck. <laughs> from that moment on, he was the kid who broke the bird's neck. He didn't do very well at getting a date to the formal, right? So... But then one of my other friends is like, I've got a story too. And we're like, oh, awesome. So we're like telling story after story about birds. Anyway, he says, I was a teacher back in the country down in New South Wales. And um, while I was teaching, a bird flew into the classroom. I'm like, cool. And he goes, because, you know, they're all country kids or whatever. They're like, we're going to rescue the birds. So they're climbing up on tables. They're getting up on the cupboard. They're like all over. The bird begins to freak out. The bird flies from the top of the cupboard into the fan. But... It, <laughs> <clears throat> but instead of splattering, it kind of hits the fan and swings round and round. You know what I'm talking about? So the bird hits the fan, one loop, two loops, three loops, flings off into the second fan, right? And then it swings one, two, three, eventually gets released, hits the whiteboard, right? And then slides down the whiteboard, leaving it, leaving a trail of blood. And the students are like, we've got to bury it, sir. So they grab it and then they go bury it, right? Now, we were just telling these stories in the staff room. We were just having, you know, stupid fun time. If I was to ask you, which of those three stories is the best, what would you say? 
Why don't you turn to the person beside you of those three stories, which is the best? You've got 10 seconds to make a decision. Okay, who thinks story number one, story number two, story number three? Okay, here's the interesting thing. Does comparing those stories make life better? Did it make it more entertaining? Did you get more out of that experience by comparing the stories? No, we didn't get to the end of our time and go, oh, well, that was funny, but, you know, it wasn't as good as this person's story, and that story could have been told better, and I think this story sounds a bit, you know, exaggerated. Like, no one was doing that. We were just enjoying the moment and having a good time. And we're in this series called Comparison Trap, and what Jason's been saying for the last few sessions, the last couple of sessions, he's been saying over and over again, there is no win in comparison. The stories didn't get better because we just compared them. The experience of those stories didn't get better because we, we rated who told the better story or who told the story better. What made the experience good was just that we enjoyed the moment and we celebrated what was before us. And today we're going to continue our series on Comparison Trap and we're going to reaffirm this idea that there is no win in comparison. Because I'm a teacher, I have the privilege of teaching young men and women or really, um, in many ways, uh, they're young men and women, because I mostly teach year 10, 11, and 12. But this year, I've had the privilege of teaching a year 8 class. And I'm teaching not just any year 8 class, I'm teaching an off-the-charts, highly intelligent year 8 class. They're doing a subject harder than what is expected of them from the Australian curriculum, and they're the best of the best of the best, right? They stream the classes at Mulat, they're off-the-charts smart. Now, what do you think my students do when they get their exams back? The first thing they want to do is look at their mark. Second thing they do is they begin to say, what did you get? Oh, how come she beat him? Oh, you beat her, ha ha. And they start going crazy with the comparison. Now, you know what's crazy is this. These students, and I'm not trying to be offensive here, but if you've kind of haven't done maths for a while, their maths ability is going to smoke you, right? Like there's no way in the world you're keeping up with them. There I've, I've had parents ring me and say, I did maths B at school. I'm pretty good at maths. I can't do this question on their revision sheet. How do I do it? It's hard maths. They're very smart. They're getting 98, 99% for their exams. They're off the charts. They're way smarter than I will ever be. But can you imagine getting a very, very, very good result you get, say, 92% or 96% in year eight, advanced maths, and you look at it and go, oh, I only got 96%. Tim got 97 Oh, and you feel terrible about yourself. It's stupid. Comparison does not make things better. It only makes things worse. I'm not saying we shouldn't want to succeed. I'm not saying we shouldn't even give students grades. I'm totally okay with giving them a mark out of 100 what is silly, though, is saying, I beat them. And This is the crazy thing. If someone gets 96%, should they be grateful? Should they be happy? Yes. But if Tim gets 97, if I get 96 and Tim gets 97, I feel bad about myself. But if I get 96 and Tim gets 95, I feel good. It's not whether I got any better than 96. What matters is I beat someone else. It's a silly way to live. If the only way to feel good about ourselves is for others to be pushed down so that we can go up, it's a terrible way to live. So we actually had a whole lesson, probably I shouldn't have done this, where I didn't teach maths 
And all we did, this is early in the year, I said, you guys are the best of the best. And this is what's going to ruin your life. And we talked about comparison and how that is the thing that will hold them back. They need to be the kind of people that celebrate the success of others if they want to succeed and they want to feel good about themselves. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, some of you may know who he is. He's a writer. He used to write for The New Yorker and uh, he's written lots of books. He's written Outliers, uh, David and Goliath, uh, Tipping Point, uh, Blink, various books that are all about thinking about how life works. Uh, In one of his books, he cites a study where they basically ask people, if you're really smart, are you better to go to a university like, say, Harvard or Oxford, like a really high-end university, or are you better to go to, like, just a local university? So for, for us here, it might be, um, what's, it, what's the Sunshine Coast one called? What is it? The University of Sunshine Coast. It's a hard one to remember. There you go, yeah. Uh, it could be QUT, it could be UQ, it could be Griffith, whatever. Are you better to go to a local uni? Or if you can get into Harvard, if you can get into Oxford, if you can get into <coughs> one of these other ones, are you better to go there? So I'm coughing a lot today, and I seem to cough at the really awkward moments in my talk. I've been speaking at a camp all weekend, and um, it's happened a lot, so I apologize. What's the answer? Turn to the person beside you. Harvard, local uni, what do you think? You've got five seconds, go. <coughs> Who thinks Harvard? Who thinks local uni? Oh, Dan, thank you so much. Look at this. So... Um, the answer that most people give is Harvard. Because if you're the worst person at Harvard, you can say, but I went to Harvard, (laughs) right? If you've gone to Harvard, you get a job anywhere in the world. What do you do? I don't know. I went to Harvard. Okay, here's your job, right? That's what everyone's going to say, isn't it? Now, but the research says local uni. This is the reason. It is better to be the best person at the local uni the best, sorry, the most, you know, capable person, the highest achieving person at the local uni than the lowest achieving person at Harvard. And it's not because it's better for your career, because what's better for your career is go to Harvard. But because of comparison, it is, it is in us. It's so hard to break out of the comparison trap that what happens is if you go to Harvard and you are not a high-performing student at Harvard, you're just average or below average, you begin to compare yourself to others and your experience in life suffers significantly and then your performance goes down. It does not help you perform better. It leads to worse performance. It is better to be the highest-performing person at QUT than the worst-performing person at Harvard. But... If we can break free of the comparison trap, none of these things matter anymore. We can go wherever we want. Okay, so what I want to do today is this. I want to look at one other principle. Jason's looked at two principles already. I want to look at one other principle that can help us break free of comparison. <clears throat> uh, if you have a Bible there, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, if you're kind of new to church, um, don't feel like bad that you don't have a Bible. Uh, a lot of us just have them on our phones anyway, but uh, we're just going to put the words up on the screen. Um, Corinthians, uh, or 1 Corinthians, is just a letter that a guy called Paul, some people call him the Apostle Paul. He was a church leader. He wrote to the church at Corinth. 
I actually wrote several letters. We have two of them uh, contained in our Bible. And in this letter, he begins to talk about something which is very significant and relevant for our discussion about comparison. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, chapter 1, <coughs> verse 1, sorry. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant. Now one of the realities of being a Christian is that as you begin to study the Bible, as you begin to study what Jesus said and, 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 and what he believed about God and what he believed about humanity, you get to a point where you begin to realize there's a lot to study. Like people go to, you know, seminaries and Bible colleges for years and years and years. I've done four and a half years of Bible college and I still feel like I know very little. There's just so much to study. So what tends to happen, if you're kind of in the process of exploring Christianity, you just need to know this is fine. We tend to focus on those things that are important and the less important things, we tend to sometimes just say, look, we need to know about these things, but we may not focus as much of our time and energy studying them. Added to that, we tend to focus on those things which are clear and those things that are a little bit more confusing. Sometimes, if we're honest, we kind of push to the side. Now, that's not always healthy. Sometimes we need to wrestle with those things. And, and we want to be the kind of community that is encouraging people to wrestle and ask questions. And this is a place where you can do that. But what Paul is saying is this. <clears throat> of all the things that, I, that you could be uninformed about, I don't want spiritual gifts to be one of the things on that list. <coughs> of all the things that you could be uninformed about, I don't want spiritual gifts to be one of the things on that list. And he goes on to say, now to each one, verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Um, the New Testament teaches that when a person becomes a Christian, they put their faith in Jesus alone. They've come to the realization that they're sinful people who need a saviour, they've come to the realisation that Jesus is the one who came to save and they bet, their, they bet the farm, they bet their life and eternity on Jesus and they trust him. There's a number of things that they receive. The most obvious is forgiveness of sins or their past sins, present sins, future sins, accidental sins, deliberate sins, all of them are forgiven in full. Jesus said, it is finished and it's finished. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And because of that, the Bible goes on to say that we have eternal life. The believer will not be judged, but has already passed from death to life. But added to that, the New Testament also teaches that we receive the Holy Spirit. There's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three people of the Trinity. The Spirit of God comes and lives in us to change our hearts, to transform us from the inside out, to make us more kind, more loving, more, great, more gracious, more forgiving, more patient, more full of self-control. And what we find is this, is that as the Spirit begins to work in us, we begin to develop a desire to do good. Added to that, the Bible says that God adopts us into His family. We kind of have this idea in the world that every single person is God's child. And kind of, you know, we understand why people say that, but actually the Bible paints the picture of something a bit different to that. It says that every single person who's ever been created has been created in God's image and they're loved by God, they're treasured by God, and he longs to have them as his children. But when humanity rebelled, it's as if they left the family 
And one of the, the main things God is wanting to do is draw people back into the family. And when we put our faith in Jesus, God the Father adopts us as his very own sons and daughters, and we become children of God. So we get all these incredible blessings, all these benefits, these gifts that God gives us when we become Christians. <coughs> Another thing that God gives us, though, is this idea of a spiritual gift. When God gives us the Spirit, He gives us at least one spiritual gift. Now, if you've never heard of these, it can sound a bit confusing. The best way to maybe describe them is to look at what Paul says in the next passage. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. <clears throat> to another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith in the same Spirit. To, to other, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one and same Spirit, and he distrib uh, distributes them to each one just as he determines. Now, if you've been around church a little while, you might have heard some of these things mentioned, and I'm not going to go into details and defining them and how they work and if they're still working and all that kind of... I'm going to leave all that to the side today. But for now, it's enough just to say that when, the, when, when a person becomes a Christian, God gives them a supernatural ability. Maybe it's an oversimplified way of describing a spiritual gift, but in a sense, a supernatural ability that can be used for God's purposes in the world. And some of them are listed here. But actually, this is not an exhaustive list. There are other lists in the Bible. So if we have a look at the next slide at the table, we can see that there's actually lots of spiritual gifts listed in the Bible. In the Romans, in the first Corinthians passage, we have some, but we also have Paul writing to the church of Rome, Exhortation, giving leadership, mercy, prophecy, service, teaching. Uh, to the church at Ephesus, he talks about apostle, evangelism, pastor, prophecy, teaching. And then there's some random ones listed in various places in the New Testament. Now, you can see there, uh, with the highlighted colors, some of these gifts are listed in different uh, contexts more than once. Is that because they're more important? I don't necessarily think so. This is my view, and you're very happy to disagree. I think every time these gifts are listed, right, there's what, 22, 23, I can't remember how many there are up there. There's not that many. Why didn't Paul just write all of them out when he writes to the Church of Corinth? If he's going to list 8, 9, 10, 11, why not list all 20? It's not that big a deal. You know, when he writes to the Church of Rome, why does he only list seven? Why doesn't he list all 20-something? Why, why, why stop at seven? I think what Paul is doing is just giving examples. So if I said to, to, to Darren, what did you do today? He says, oh, yeah, I went down to um, the local shop. I said, oh, okay, um, is it a good shop? He goes, yeah, yeah, you can buy milk, you can buy bread, you can buy cereal there. I'm like, cool. And then I said to Tim, what did you do today? He goes, oh, yeah, I went to the local shop. Um, yeah, the shop... You can buy um, ice cream, you can buy bread, you can buy bananas. And what they're doing, they're just giving examples of the kinds of things you can buy at a shop. I don't sit there and go, oh, the only three things you can buy at Tim's shop are ice cream, bread and bananas. Do you see what I'm saying? They're just giving examples. So my view is that actually this entire list that I've got up there on the screen is not exhaustive. I think God is gifting people in all sorts of different ways for his purposes in the world at this moment. 
And that one of the things we need to celebrate when we become a Christian is that God has given us at least one, if not more, spiritual gifts. Now, my Bible college lecture defined a spiritual gift differently to a natural ability. Some people don't like making that distinction. His definition was this. A spiritual gift is an ability that you use that when you do it, the Holy Spirit moves in power above and beyond in you and through you in a way that it would not work if it was just a natural ability. So for instance, I am a maths teacher. I don't know if I have a spiritual gift of of teaching. I know I can teach maths. I have the skill of being able to teach maths. Do I have the spiritual gift of teaching? Well, the spiritual gift of teaching is someone who when they teach the Bible, the Bible comes alive and it makes sense. I'm not sure that's actually my gift. And now you're wondering why are you in the church today? (laughs) So there there could be some distinction there. Anyway, if it's worth exploring, I'd encourage you to do more reading about it. Well, go on. Just as, sorry, in verse 12, just as a body... Um, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Now here we find Paul starting to describe people who belong to God as being part of a body. Sometimes we hear people use the phrase, the body of believers. This is where that phrase would come from. Paul describes the church or the people of God as the body of believers. And Paul uses this analogy to give us three reasons why we can stop comparing ourselves to each other. He goes on, verse 15. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for that reason stop being part of the body. So the first point that Paul is making is this. There is no need to compare ourselves to others in order to feel significant. God says each and every one of us is significant regardless of the gift we have. If the ear looks at the eye and says, well, I'm not an eye, therefore I'm not significant. No, 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 no. We are significant because we are part of the body. Every part of the body is significant. We don't, I don't need to compare myself to Tim and go, well, I got 97, he got 96, therefore I'm better. It's not about that. We are significant because we have a role to play in the body. He goes on, verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? So the second point Paul is making is this. The world doesn't need us to be like the people we compare ourselves to. Have you ever thought, oh, I'd love to change places with them. I'd love to have their life. I'd love to be more like them. That's not what the Bible's teaching. The Bible's teaching, don't try and be like someone else. Start to become the person that God has created and designed us to be. The world doesn't need us to, to be like the people we compare ourselves to. What the world needs is for us to play the role God has designed us to play and use the gifts that God has given us to use. He goes on in verse 18. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So the third point Paul makes is this. There is no need for us to look at others' gifts and feel like we got ripped off. You ever felt that? 
oh, I wish, I wish God, what God, I don't know what happened. Maybe the angels would get busy. I don't know what went wrong, but I lucked out. I got ripped off. I've only got this gift. Tim got this gift or Darren got this gift, whatever. That, there's no need for that. The spiritual gift we received has been specifically allocated by the God of the universe so that we can play the specific role that God has for us. The, specific, the, the spiritual gift that I have received, that you have received, has been specifically designated to you for the purpose that God has for you. Is this making sense? There is no need for us to compare ourselves to each other. <clears throat> so the invitation today is simple. What would it look like if we were to celebrate what God has given others and leverage what God has given us? What would it look like to live free of comparison? What would it look like to say, hey, listen, all of us have been given gifts. My gifts are not your gifts. Your gifts are not my gifts. But I've been given a specific place in this, in this world with a specific spiritual gift with a specific purpose. And rather than be jealous of others and compare ourselves to others or think highly of ourselves or think lowly of ourselves, what would it look like to say, hey, listen, I'm just going to celebrate God's gifted and wired people very differently. I'm glad I'm not like Simon. I'm glad I don't have to run organizations. I'm glad I'm not like Dan. I'm glad I'm not like Tim. And it's not because I don't respect them. I have the huge respect for people. But I'm glad that I don't have to play the role that they play because I wouldn't cope with that. God has given me gifts that work specifically for my personality and my place in the world. What would it look like for us to celebrate the gifts that God has given others and focus on leverage, take what God has given us and use that for his purposes? Um, I want to show you something that came out of some research that Gallup did. And... Um, Gallup did, they're an organization in America, they did about 30 years of research, and they basically said, if you're going to succeed in life, this is not Christian research, by the way, so if you're going to succeed in life, they basically said, look at the different uh, things that you do, and it might be, um, this might be my fashion skills, maths, music ability, speaking skills, whatever it is, Right? And there's different aspects. And what they said was, when you're in school, you tend to look at your weaknesses and get told, well, you, oh, well, you failed maths. You better get maths up. Oh, you're not doing too well in science. You better get, you know. And we tend to look at where we're performing poorly in school and work on our weaknesses. Now, my personal opinion is that when children are young in school, that's actually not a bad thing. There is a certain level of literacy and numeracy that everyone needs. Would you agree? We need to make sure that people get to a certain level of some things. But in other things, it doesn't matter. I am tone deaf. And apart from the fact that it annoys the people who, who sit beside me in church, it's never affected my life, right? But what Gallup said is this. After 30 years of research, millions of employees, hundreds of thousands of organizations, they found if you take the things where you're naturally like a seven or a six or an eight, what you should do is pick those two or three areas of your life where you're actually naturally strong in. You should focus on them. So bump the six up to an eight, the seven up to a nine, um, the eight up to a 10. And then what you should do 
is try to orchestrate your life in such a way that you are operating mostly out of the eights, nines, and tens. If you want to succeed in life, you do not need to be good at everything. You just need to pick the two or three areas where you're naturally good, bump them up to an eight, a nine, or a ten, and try to find a way to orchestrate your life in such a way that you're mostly operating out of the eights, nines, and tens. Is this making sense? Uh, Several years ago, um, when I was about, uh, really, when I was even straight after I became a Christian, I started getting involved in leadership. Now, I was a really shy kid, but this whole picture that Jesus died for sinners and it was a free gift, it just, it just transformed me on the spot. It changed everything. I was the crazy guy at uni going around talking to people, walking up to them asking, I don't know if you've heard, but it's free. I was the crazy guy. And um, I, I basically got involved in leadership very quickly. I started going to a very small Lutheran church and I got all my friends to come and it doubled within about a month. It was only very small. We had only about 20 people and I doubled up to about 40. And I started getting involved doing leadership stuff, probably way before I should have. Then for some reason they said, um, oh, we'd like to do some wider stuff with the different Lutheran churches in Brisbane. So I got involved in getting all the different Lutheran young adults groups together and we got about 150, 200 people to come to big socials once a quarter. I then went to another church and I got involved in leadership there and we had a young adult group of about 20 people and over the next couple of years we, we kind of grew it up to about 200 and I just lived and breathed leadership. I, I read everything I could on leadership. I would have read well over 100 books on leadership. I, I know leadership. I know it, I know it, I know it. And then from there, I went and did church planting. I went and um, started a leadership conference. I've done all these things. And then eventually I got invited to go to a, a conference overseas for young leaders. And uh, it was at a church called Willow Creek. There's different people from all over the world that came. There was about 80 of us there. And we did this intense session for a week with very high-level leaders. I hated it. I'm meeting all these high-level leaders and thinking, I'm not like them. And I just, I don't know, it, it threw me. This was my dream. I thought I'm going to be an organizational leader. I'd, I'd, for 10 years, this is all I'd lived and breathed. And I just, I just started to meet high-level organizational leaders far greater, you know, than I've ever, ever been able to get to myself. And I looked at their lives and thought, I don't want to do this. And then on the last day that we were there, we got on a plane and we went to a church called North Point. So North Point's actually the church that Creekside is kind of adopting a lot of the kind of similar philosophy and values from. And my friends, my two friends and I, we weren't really meant to be there. We just kind of rocked up. And we said to the people, listen, would you mind if we just come and check out what you're doing? And one of the staff members was so lovely. She just said, listen, I've got some time. I'll take you around the facilities. If you've got a few hours, I'll show you our programs. We can go in. We can have a look in the different rooms. It's fantastic. So my two other friends who are very good leaders, they're like looking at the facilities. They're like writing things down. They're taking photos. They're like getting notes, what they're going to take back to their own church. But I, like an idiot, I'm distracted because in the hallway up on the screen was the pastor, a guy called Andy Stanley, and I could see, I could hear the message that he was doing in the main congregation. And he was explaining a concept, and I was listening to the way he's explaining that, and I'm sitting there going, this is so helpful and so clear. Now, that was stupid because I could have listened to his talk at any time 
I could have listened to it on a podcast on the way home. I was there to look at the facilities. I was there to look at the programs. I was there to think organisational leadership. And I walked away from that day and I said, you know what, I've realised. This week has made me realise. I don't want to be an organisational leader. I don't love this. I'm okay at it. I've done some things. But then I meet people who actually, you know, you meet people like Vern and Simon and you go, these people live and breathe this stuff. They know what they're doing. And it made me realise I was trying to be someone I wasn't. So I went back and I said, righto, what does God want me to do? And I realised the thing that I love doing is sitting down with people who are not Christians, who want to know how to become a Christian and just simply sitting with them and saying, this is it. I'm happy to sit here as long as you want. I don't think I've got all the answers, but I think I can make Christianity simple and clear. I'll just sit with you and I'll help you become Christians. And that's it. My life is so much better because I've stopped trying to be someone I'm not. I've stopped trying to compare myself to others and become this great leader or whatever. And I've just realized God has given me one thing to do. That is just to help people become Christians. And that's what I've given my life to ever since. The the relief and the anxiety that has left me because of this decision has just been amazing. And I don't know your story, but what I know is that when you find the thing that God has given you to do, I'm not saying we shouldn't dabble with other things. I'm not saying we shouldn't be responsible. Oh, God hasn't given me the washing to do, (laughs) you know. But what we need to do is say, what has God given me to do? What is the thing? What is the gift? What is the calling on my life? And focus on that. Let's pray. So Father, thank you so much that you love us and care for us. Thank you, Jesus, you came for sinners. You used broken people. Um, And we thank you, Jesus, that you have come to free us from guilt and shame, but you've also come to free us from the, the, the trap of comparing ourselves to others, the need to feel like we've got to make ourselves significant. We thank you that you love us as we are, that we are significant because we belong to you and that you have a purpose for our life. I pray for each and every one of us, God, would you show us what is our spiritual gift? What is the thing that you want us to do in this world? And would you help us? Would you empower us to use that gift for your purposes? Amen.